All right. So we're wrapping up Revelation 22, or the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 22. Um, before we get into that, we'll, get in, we'll read that text closer to the end of this message. I want to do a quick, kind of very quick, not an overview of the whole book, but a review of the kind of principles of interpretation that I've been following. Because most, if not all, of the questions I've gotten throughout this entire series when I've maybe taught a perspective on a text that is different from what some of you are used to, it the answer to that question comes down to your general approach to the book, okay? And really, your approach to interpreting the Bible as a whole, okay? And so I want to review some of those quick principles and decisions I made as I was approaching Revelation and that might help you more. And I know a lot of you also who missed a lot in between in some of these sermons, you're going back and, and, and listening. And so I think this will help you too, especially those of you who are coming, kind of joining us late in the game. Um, this will help you especially a lot with understanding what it is I've been teaching. Okay. So a couple of, couple of principles. Okay. One is it really matters how you read. Okay. If you think about just how you read in general, set the Bible aside for just a second. When you like read a story, for example, that starts with uh, once upon a time in a land far away, that clues your brain into reading that story a certain way. Even the fact that I just called it a story tells you something, right? You don't even know, I don't even have it you know, I haven't read the whole book. I just gave you one line and you already know that it's a story. And it's not just, it's not a true story. It's a fantasy of some sort, right? And so th that, that clue tells you how to interpret what it is you're reading. You're not going to read that story as though it's a news article or a teaching or anything else. That's a genre of literature and we are comfortable with it. We know it and we don't think about what we're, how we're reading. We just do it. Okay. The same thing is true in the Bible. There's lots of different genres in Scripture. And one of the genres that we are, as a culture right now, very unfamiliar with is apocalyptic literature, which was common back when Revelation was written. And so how we read this is not natural for a modern-day Westerner. Okay? You don't have the same kind of cult enculturated thought patterns and automatic kind of understanding of how to read something like when you read Once Upon a Time, okay? Um, so we all intuitively accept, though, that we read different genres differently, okay? And so when we read certain things, we just interpret it differently based on the clues we get. Um, so we, what tends to happen, though, with the Bible is we tend to, most people tend to read the Bible sort of every book of the Bible the same way and interpret it the same way. And that's a real mistake, okay? Um, because you've got like Paul's letters, which are kind of direct proclamation teaching, which most people are pretty comfortable with. Like he's saying, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is not true, this is not true, this is not true. He's just teaching you directly. And that for a Westerner is very easy to kind of get your head around how to interpret that. Stories, narrative stories, are more difficult for us, um, where in some cultures that's the, the direct teaching is weird, 
and they learn most of their uh, doctrine and truths from stories. Uh, parables are even harder because they're intentionally written that way. Um, and that's why a lot of people have a hard time with the Old Testament because most of it's narrative stories that you're having to read and then draw principles out of. And so with the book of Revelation, it's incredibly symbolic. That is a feature of apocalyptic literature, okay, of which Revelation is a part, okay, belongs to that category. So the symbolism for, for, for kind of a modern Westerner is because of the, it can be ambiguous, we get a little frustrated, or we kind of go crazy with the analysis. And either one is a mistake, okay? Um, it can be frustrating. It can cause you to be afraid of sliding theologically in a liberal direction, which is where a lot of the hyper-literal approach to Revelation comes from. It comes from a good desire to treat the Bible seriously. But just think back to my analogy for just a second ago about once upon a time. If you were to read a story that's written as a fantasy story, as a literal, true history of the world, you would actually be dishonoring the story by taking it the wrong way, okay? And so don't be afraid of the symbolism in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. You're not being a doctrinal liberal, okay? You're not. You're treating the text as it was intended, not as we want it to be, okay? Um, so it's designed, the reason I think so much of the symbolism exists in Revelation is there's a real power in it, right? It fires up your imagination. It causes you to kind of go, to picture what, what he's describing and not just receive it as just information. You receive, it has an impact emotionally if you just let your imagination, you know, spin up and bring these, all this imagery in. It's also meant to shock you. Some of the imagery in Revelation is dark, it's intense, it's violent, it's bloody, uh, and it is meant to shock you a little bit so that you, uh, so it breaks down some of your like intellectual resistance and causes your soul to get involved, your, your emotions to get involved, and that's a powerful thing, okay? So that's the reason for that. So taking the text as symbolic is only theologically incorrect if the author did not mean for it to be symbolic. Okay, so if you go to Paul, and Paul says, uh, this, here's this statement and this, that is a truth, and you go, oh, he's just being symbolic. He's just being metaphorical. No, Paul would be like, no, what are you talking about? I'm not being metaphorical. I'm just telling you something. So you receive it that way, okay? And so it's only wrong if the author did not intend it to be that way, okay? All right, so it's very important with a book like this to think about what your principles of interpretation are going into it. So one first principle is the book of Revelation is symbolic, start to finish. Second principle is it's not written in linear chronological order. This is a huge one for those of you who have always read it as all the events that happen in Revelation happen one after the other. And that is one approach, okay? It's not heresy to say that. I'm just saying that's my perspective. It's not linear. It's not in chronological order. Instead, it recapitulates. I've used that word several times. It recapitulates several times over the same historical ground, the same period of time, describing it from different perspectives, okay? Like different camera angles on a football field 
of the game. And each angle that you look at shows you a different perspective, different information, different details, and has a different impact. On okay. The same way with the book of Revelation. It is describing, by and large, the church age, the time between when Jesus ascended the first time and when he returns in the future in the second, all right, the second coming. It's not written, the third and final principle, it is not written as a mathematical code, okay? That is not how apocalyptic literature works, okay? It is not a math code. Uh, it's, it's, that's not how symbolism works. Um, getting lost in the trees instead of enjoying the forest is a really common mistake because you get a lot of details in these visions that John has. And it's real easy to get analytical about these minute details and miss the forest for the trees. Okay? You lose the emotional impact because you've turned it basically into a math problem. You lose the, the big picture, which is usually the point is the big picture, not the minute details. And you risk, most of the time when you overanalyze, it takes you in a wrong direction, a wrong interpretation. It takes you into a hyper-literal interpretation, where that's when you get into things like, who is the Antichrist? I'm looking for one dude in history who is the Antichrist. Instead of understanding big picture, there are many Antichrists. Okay? That's just one example. So that's kind of been my approach. And so that will, understanding those things will answer honestly, like, or applying those principles will answer like 90% of the questions that you might have um, about the book. All right. So I just want to talk about some themes that impacted me um, as kind of just a way of maybe prompting you to think it the same way about the book. Because I think it's really helpful when you finish any book of the Bible whether it's a sermon series or just you reading it, that you, when you finish it, you pause and you just kind of think back over what you read and draw broad themes out of it because we tend to focus on individual verses, which is quite often a mistake um, because you lose the big themes. And so I want to talk about some of those and kind of stir up your memory to think about that too. So one that's really hit me big time, which I already kind of believed in, but has reinforced it tremendously, is simply the sovereignty of Christ over all of history. When you start to read what, it's, when you think about just the time, the timeline of these things, that John or God, Jesus gave John these visions, these prophecies, in the first century, okay? Before a hundred years was up, okay? Now, whether you think it was 70 AD or 90 AD is irrelevant at this point, okay? What's amazing is that, like, don't, don't miss the forest for the trees. People arguing about the date missed the forest for the trees because the trees, the, over, the, the, the top level view is that God prophesied and he told us what life would be like throughout the entire church age until he returns. And he has been dead on right about all of it. Like all the things we have seen, none of it is a surprise. And what that shows us is that not only does God tell us what's going to happen, know what's going to happen, but he orchestrate, He is orchestrating and moving events and people and hearts and minds throughout all of history to bring it to a conclusion that he has planned. That's amazing. Yeah, think about how powerful God would have to be to do that. It's amazing. 
And the more you think about that single idea, just the fact that Revelation exists, the book of Revelation exists, and it was written when it was written, and it has been right at every point about how life will be for the church, how life will be in the world, and where it's all going. It's amazing. God is powerful beyond your imagination. This means that also that God's purpose is not a mystery. Sometimes I think we act like it is. <laughs> God's purpose, what he's going for, what he's moving the world towards is not a mystery. He tells us over and over again. Everything God is doing in history is establishing his kingdom on earth by gathering people into his family, which is the church. He's using both mercy and judgment to do that. Both things. We like the mercy part. We tend to not like the judgment part. So we've talked a lot about the wrath of God throughout this series and what exactly that is, what it means, why it's a good thing. And I'm not going to revisit that again this morning, but God uses both mercy and judgment to gather people into his family, into his church, to establish his kingdom forever on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's, that's not a mystery. We all, that's God's purpose. If you want to know what God's doing, he's doing that. And so if you want to know what God's doing in your life, he is using you to do that. Okay, that is your purpose. That's why you don't get up in the morning to stay safe. You don't get up in the morning to make money. You don't get up in the morning to even have a happy, safe, comfortable family. Get up in the morning. The reason you're breathing right now is to partake in that mission of God, to establish his kingdom on earth through his church. That's why you exist. That's all in the book of Revelation. You can see that, and it's a broad theme from start to finish. Another one is the false comparison between mission and safety, or the false prioritizing of safety over mission is another thing you could think of. Um, this has really impacted me, especially right now, with all this worry about viruses and um, what to do and what not to do, all those kinds of questions that everybody is wrestling with and dealing with right now. It's easy to start to think that safety is our highest priority. Because that's what, listen, that's what, at least in my generation and probably my kids' generation even more, uh, the message from our culture has taught us safety first. I mean, how many times have you seen that phrase used everywhere? On toys, on the walls, at your work, in commercials, in literature, safety first. But the church has never been safety first, ever. That is, never, that is not the message of the Bible, and it's certainly not how the early church lived. Safety is not first. It's important, but what's first is the mission of God that I just told you, right? God has never said to you or to me, you know what, the most important thing is that you're safe. Never been the most important thing. The most important thing is the kingdom. It's the mission of God. Um, the church we read about in Revelation is a church that is under constant attack from a variety of sources, yet continues to faithfully preach Christ to a world that lives in the crosshairs of God's judgment all the time. That is our situation. 
you're just constantly under attack. Constantly, there's always some hardship, whether it's pestilence, right? The pestilence of the coronavirus, or maybe it's some kind of persecution from the world, or maybe it's just poverty. But the church has always been under attack. It, the church has never really been safe. But the church has always thrived in the most unsafe environments. That's historically accurate, and it's certainly the message of Revelation. That God will cover us, God will lead us, God will bless us, God will take care of his kids. Our job is not to worry about that. Our job is to worry about the mission of God and the kingdom of God through the church. The safety is important, but it's not first. It's not the most important. It's amazing how relevant that is right now. It's just, like I said, the way God has prepared us, if we've been paying attention, the way God has prepared us for life now, life in the 60s, life in the 30s, life in the 20s, life in the teens, right? Life in America, life around the world. Revelation has taught us that this is what we should expect. And we should expect a slow and gradual uptick in the difficulties in the world, but also a slow and gradual increase in the power and the presence of the kingdom of God in the world, which is exactly what we're experiencing right now. So let's look at Revelation 22. The last few verses of the book of Revelation. By the way, if you're just joining us, we have not been doing going through the Bible in order. This does not mean we have finished the Bible. All right. Um, it just means we finished the book of Revelation. All right, Revelation 22. I'm going to start in verse 4. The first five verses of 22 really belong in chapter, with chapter 21. It, thematically, it all goes with what we talked about last week, but I'm just going to read verse 4 and 5 to kind of remind you of where we were last week to give you some context, okay? Revelation 22, starting in verse 4, says, They will see his face, they being you and I, the church. Okay, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is what your destiny is if you're a follower of Christ. This is where he's taking us. You will see his face. Think about that for a minute. Physically, literally see Jesus' face right in front of you. You'll no longer be praying to him by the Spirit. You will talk to him face to face. That's going to be, what a moment that's going to be for each of us. Then verse 6, this is, Okay, so this is when we transition from the end of that vision, that last vision John saw in chapter 21, and now he's going to do an epilogue, which is like a closing out of his letter, which is kind of the way he started the book of Revelation. So verse 6, he says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Good news. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. <laughs> but he said to me, you must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus talking. These are the red letters, right? Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves to practice practices of falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. But the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's stop there for just a second. So this verse 17 is a great summary of the gospel and our mission as a church. This is what we should be doing. The Spirit and the Bride. The Bride is the church. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Holy Spirit and the Bride are both confessing the same thing. Saying, what are they saying to the world? Hey, come, come on. If you, if you can hear in the way Jesus meant when he said hear, meaning hear and believe. If you, are, if you hear that invitation, just come in. Leave Babylon, come into Zion. Right? That's been one of the themes of our study in Revelation. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're thirsty, if you're spiritually thirsty, this is the answer. Like, think about that. Don't be ashamed and don't be afraid to say boldly to anyone, Christianity is the answer. <laughs> it is. That's what he says. It's the answer. Maybe not some, not the bad form or a false form of Christianity, but the gospel itself, the real gospel is the answer for the thirsty. It is the water of life for those who thirst for life. This is a wonderful summary. This is what your message is. This is what your life should be saying in one way or the other, is there is an open invitation to anyone who can hear, anyone who hears and believes, to come in and drink of Him, to drink in and be satisfied in Him, have life, real spiritual life inside of you and coursing out of you to give you a, to discover what your purpose, why you were created, why you were made by Him. All of that is found in Jesus Christ. Not found anywhere else. Verse 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. <laughs> and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. It ends with a wonderful benediction. I just want to encourage you this morning to remember what it is you were born for and what it is you were created for. You were not created to fulfill your own dreams, your own passions, your own desires. You were made to be on His mission and to discover your purpose and who you are in Him. It's amazing how the more you follow Jesus, the more your desires and your dreams and your passions begin to transform and match His. This is your purpose. Your mission in life is not to get more stuff. Your mission in life is not to build more walls around your fortress of solitude. Your mission in life is not to be safe. Your mission in life is to find your place in God's church to advance His kingdom and to issue this invitation to the world. Come in. Those who are thirsty, those who have ears to hear, come in and drink of His life. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing right now. As I'm trying to encourage you to be that. I'm also hoping somebody wanders in off the internet and clicks the thing and goes, and here's the gospel. That's what I'm hoping for. This is all of our desire. And so I want to encourage you to, my, my, I think my, my heart for you through all of this coronavirus stuff has been that. That you not let go of the mission of God while the world is spinning around like a bunch of crazy people. Losing sight of their purpose, losing sight of where, losing their anchor into reality and the world has been spinning, don't start spinning. And instead, engage with your mission before God and find a way to do it. Just find a way, right? All right.